Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Good afternoon. My name is Brad Swift, and I'm your host today. In today's interview, Renee Rao and I talk with Paul Piff, a social psychologist and postdoctoral scholar in the psychology department at the University of California, Berkeley. Paul studies how social hierarchy, inequality, and emotion shape relations between individuals and groups. Paul Piff received his Ph.D. in psychology from UC Berkeley in May 2012. On to the interview. Paul Piff, welcome to Spectrum. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. I wanted to have you talk about your research. Psychology is such a big field. How does your research fit into that? Psychology is a big field. A lot of people are psychologists and are interested in a lot of different questions as they relate to people and organisms and why different kinds of organisms do the things that they do. The brand of psychology that I'm really interested in is called social psychology. So what I do is, as opposed to having people lay on a couch and talk to me about their problems, I study what people do around others and the reasons for what they do. So I study emotion. That's one of the focuses of my work. I've also recently gotten really interested in the effects of inequality and specifically how a person's levels of wealth and status in society shapes the ways that they see the world and behave toward other people. As a social psychologist, you take a question that's of interest to you like how do the rich behave compared to those that are poor and then you think about how you would design experiments and different kinds of studies to look at that using a very quantitative approach. So as a social psychologist, I design a lot of studies where people literally come into the lab. There's something happening where I can observe what they do without their necessarily knowing. And I use that to infer basic motivations behind people's behavior. Can you explain then some of your methods, uh, maybe an example of how you set up a study? A study. So a lot of the work that I've been doing relates to this basic question of how money shapes behavior. So how do people who have a lot of money behave differently toward others from those who don't have as much money? One of the things that I was interested in studying, for example, is how does the amount of money that you have shape how generous and helping you are toward other people? In social psychology, we call that general category of behavior pro-social behavior or altruism. What makes people behave in ways that help another person out, even if that means they have to do something kind of costly? So let's say I'm interested in looking at levels of generosity, a lot of different ways in which people can be generous toward one another in everyday life. But I want to study this in the lab, and so one of the ways that we can do that is using a standard task where we can have someone engage in it and see how generous they are. And one of the tasks that I'll use is called the dictator task. And for instance, in one study in this dictator task, I give someone literally $10, and I say, you can keep all these $10. Ten single dollar bills. Or you can decide how many of these dollar bills you want to give away, if any, 
to another person who's totally anonymous that you've been paired with in this study. And I tell them they'll never meet this other person. The other person will never meet them. And I just measure how many of those dollars they're willing to give away. Another thing I do before they come into the lab is measure what their income is. So I can look at how generous they are, how many of these single-dollar bills they're willing to give away as a function of how much money they have. And that's one of the assessments that I used in one area of study to look at levels of giving, levels of generosity in the simple task as a function of how much money people have. So there's rational economic models that would say that if you have a lot of money, that the utility of those $10 is somewhat diminished because you have more money in the first place. So you would predict that as a rational actor, a person who has more money is going to give more money away because $10 means less. That's the opposite of what we find. In fact, people who make under $15,000 a year give significantly more, on average, 6 to $7 away than does someone who makes $150,000 to $200,000 a year. So we found incredible differences. And so a lot of my work over the last five or six years, and this is in collaboration with other people in my lab, is to try to document why it is that these really notable differences emerge between the haves and the have-nots and what the psychological underpinnings of those differences are. But that's an example of a kind of study that we'll run. Our guest today is Paul Piff, a social psychologist. Paul is talking about how he designs his research studies. This is KALX Berkeley. I have a question about the dictator test. Do you find any sort of other correlating variables in between just wealth and lack of wealth? Do you find education has a difference or how people made the wealth? Can you draw sort of a causal line between saying this person has more and this makes them less empathetic or this person being less empathetic maybe has led to them being wealthier? The dictator task has been used a lot and there are a lot of correlating variables that we know about already. Age correlates, religion correlates, ethnicity correlates. And so if I'm interested in the specific effects of wealth, I have to account for those other things. And I do. So controlling for a lot of other variables, wealth above and beyond a person's race, their age, what religion they are, how religious they are in the first place, wealth has a specific effect. But the question that you're getting at, I think, is a even bigger one, which is how do I know whether it's wealth that causes someone to do something or is it people that are, say, a little more selfish with their money who become wealthy in the first place? And that is a really important question. And I think one of the insights that we've had from a lot of the experimental work that we've done, I can literally take someone who's quote-unquote poor, make them feel rich, and show you that making them feel wealthy temporarily in the lab actually makes them behave more unethically, which suggests that there's at least in part a causal direction between having money, feeling like you have money, and that subjective experience, that psychological experience causing you to behave in some ways that are a little more entitled, a little more self-serving. Now, there's another important question, which is if these differences do exist between those that have and those that don't, are they fixed? Are they rooted? 
Is that just a fact of life that we have to accept and sort of move on from? Or are they sensitive to changes? And if they are, what are the kinds of things that you can do to move people's behavior around or to make certain people in society a little more empathetic? Without necessarily getting into the details, there are a lot of things that can be done and a lot of my work looks at specific variables that you can manipulate even through subtle interventions that get people who have a lot more money to behave in ways that are a lot more compassionate and a lot more empathetic. And one of the lessons that I've learned from this work is that it's not that difficult. So it's not that people who have money are necessarily corrupt in any way but that there's a specific psychological experience associated with privilege that gets you to become a little more disconnected from others, a little more insular from others, and that certain patterns of behavior flow as a result, but those patterns can be easily changed. Can we talk about some of the tweaks that you use to sort of bring about those changes? Sure. One of the things that I'm really interested in right now is if it's the case that upper status individuals are more likely to behave unethically, then what are some subtle interventions that could be done, like a little ethics reminder course at the beginning? That So I've run this where I've basically had people do sort of a 10 minutes ethics training program where I remind them about some of the benefits of the rules and how cooperating with others can ultimately bring about gains for the whole group, including yourself. And I see how that basic values intervention changes their patterns of unethicality downstream. But now in one of the studies that I ran, I just wanted to look at helping behavior. What makes a person want to help out another? So in this study, the way that I designed my test was I had one group of participants sitting in the lab and about 15 minutes into the study, into the room bursts another person. Now this person's appearing visibly distressed. They're worried, they're sweating, they're anxious. They apologize for being late and they introduce themselves as their partner in the study. Now there is an experimenter standing there who says, it's all right that you're late. Why don't you go ahead and seat yourself in this other room? And they turn to the participant and ask the participant if they'd be willing to give up some of their own time to help out this other person who would otherwise have to stay on for a lot of extra time to complete all of the tasks that they'd need to complete. And so that's our measure of helping behavior, how many minutes people are willing to volunteer to help out this other person who's actually a confederate. They're someone we've trained to be late, to appear distressed, etc. They're an actor. All right, so in one condition, we find that richer people give way fewer minutes than poorer people paralleling all the other results. But we had this other condition that I think is really revealing. In that condition, before they were seated in the lab, about 15 minutes earlier, they watched a 46-second long video. And in that video, it was just a quick little reminder of the problems of childhood poverty. And it was a video that we'd designed to elicit increased feelings of compassion. Now, in that group, 15 minutes later, when the people who had seen that video were sitting in a lab and were introduced to that confederate and asked if they'd be willing to help them out, there were no differences between the rich and the poor in our study. So essentially, that quick little reminder of the needs of others made wealthier people just as generous of their time to help out this other person as poorer people, suggesting that simple reminders of the needs of other people can go a long way toward restoring that empathy gap. And so the interesting question to me is, what are the ways in which in everyday life we can remind even those in the upper echelons of society of the needs of other people and the small benefits that can be incurred through small and even sometimes trivial acts of kindness toward another person? 
You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Our guest today is Paul Piff. In the next segment, he talks about his collaboration with Facebook. talk about how psychology seems to be a field that's accessible not only in terms of uh, mechanics and just finding the work, but also more understandable for a layman or for everyday people than most sciences. I think it's one of the most popular majors in colleges across the U.S. And can you sort of talk about the broad appeal that psychology has and why you think that might be? I think that observation rings true. I think psychology is something that's accessible and that that accessibility and the understandableness of the content is what makes it kind of relatable and popular. In the kind of work that we do, it's a positive and a negative. So what I mean by that is everyone who's engaged with others or interacted with others who has a sense of how people behave is a an intuitive psychologist. We're all psychologists. We all make decisions based on what we think is going to make us happy, what's going to make others happy, what's the kind of relationship that's meaningful to me. We all run these kinds of experiments. In fact, life is sort of like a psychological experiment run on a single person, five billion people at a time, or whatever the population of the earth is. So we're all intuitive psychologists. But what that means is for the work that we do, if we find something or generate a finding, it's either obvious. So someone could say, oh, yeah, you had to run a study to do that. I've known that all along. Or if it doesn't conform to your worldview, you're wrong. You've run the study incorrectly. So the question is, are we actually convincing people or revealing new insights about how the mind works to others such that our awareness and understanding of psychology is increasing? Or are we simply just telling people what they knew all along or telling them things that they feel like is just flat out wrong? And that's something that I've wondered about myself, to what extent our findings are convincing people or informing people of things that they don't intuitively experience in their everyday lives. Do you want to talk about what you're doing with Facebook? I know you're yeah, we can talk about Facebook in an ongoing collaboration with Facebook. So maybe yeah, you could sure. tell us a little bit more about that. With Facebook, Dacker Keltner, who's a f- psychology faculty member here at Berkeley, and Emiliana Simon Thomas, who's the science director of the Greater Good Science Center, also at Berkeley, and I have been working with a team of engineers at Facebook to. Put very, very simply, make Facebook a more compassionate place. Now, when we started working with Facebook about 12 months ago, that was what was posed to us. Help us make Facebook a more compassionate place. What does that mean? How do you do that? Well, what's become clear to me is that there are a lot of opportunities on Facebook and elsewhere to build little tools to make interactions between people and online a little more sympathetic and a little more empathetic. So here's an example. A lot of people on Facebook post photos. What that means when photos are getting posted is that there's the possibility that you're going to encounter a photo that you don't like. And what Facebook found was that people were encountering these photos and just submitting reports to Facebook saying, hey, there's something seriously wrong with this photo. Facebook needs to take it down. And more often than not, people were reporting photos that had been posted by a friend of theirs. Very rarely do these reported photos actually violate Facebook's terms of services. So Facebook can't do anything about it. And what we thought and what we've done is in the context of a photo being posted that you don't like, maybe this is a photo of your child that you think shouldn't be up. It violates your privacy. Maybe it's a photo of you at a party in a some kind of revealing pose that you think is embarrassing. 
it doesn't really matter. But what we've done is try to, for instance, give people tools to express why that photo is problematic, not to Facebook, but to the person who posted it. And so now there's a series of things that pop up on the site if you're having a problem with something that someone's posted that basically gets you to think about your experience, be a little bit mindful about the feelings that you're experiencing, and be a little more mindful in how you express those feelings to the other person that put the photo up. And when we just looked at the data recently, what we found is that by identifying the particular reason why you're finding that photo problematic and expressing that to the other person gets them to be a lot more empathetic, a lot more sympathetic, and really importantly, a lot more likely to take the photo down. So we're actually trying to resolve disputes and conflicts on Facebook. And there are a lot of other directions that this work has taken. We're dealing with bullying with the team at Yale. We're doing all sorts of other things that basically relate to what makes people get along or not get along in an online context. I think the other question that I was trying to get at but didn't quite get to is how you think interactions on platforms like the internet, if they are fundamentally different than people interacting face-to-face or in a laboratory, and why you think that might be the case? Yes. (laughs) What I mean by that is there's no single answer to the question, and I think it's too early to tell. I think that online interactions are expressions of fundamental psychological tendencies, much like real-world interactions are. So I don't think that things unfold online that wouldn't unfold in the real world. But does that mean that certain things are going to be accentuated or emphasized or magnified in an online setting? I think that's true as well. So I think online interactions are a certain kind of context where dynamics unfold that aren't fundamentally different from other kinds of contexts in everyday life, but in which you might see certain kinds of patterns emphasized or magnified. This is KALX Berkeley. The show is Spectrum. Our guest is Paul Piff, a social psychologist. Do you see a future in collaboration between brain studies and psychology? Absolutely. So that that future is now. I think a lot of psychologists who incorporate brain imaging and brain data, fMRI data, into their papers, into their studies, this is a direction that even my work is beginning to move into. So I feel like the opportunities for collaboration are definitely there, and in fact, they're unfolding now. There's a lot of neuroscience that's less interested in, quote-unquote, psychology and more interested in, say, biology. But there's a lot of social neuroscience, a lot of brain research that's done that's specifically motivated and oriented around understanding why people feel the things that they do, what does emotion look like in the brain, what drives basic behavior patterns. So absolutely, I think that those opportunities are there. And this is a, an incredibly exciting developing area of the science. One of the things in the 50s and 60s when B.F. Skinner and behaviorism was all the rage is that behaviorism and the quantification of behavior gained traction because it was argued that you can't look inside the black box. And if you can't look inside the black box, which is people's brains, people's minds, then the only thing you can study is behavior. And if we're interested in a science of behavior, then the only thing we can measure is what a person does or what a rat does or what a pigeon pecks at. But what 
neuroscience has allowed us to do is take a look at what is happening in that so-called black box. And if you put someone's brain in a magnet and scan it and see what's happening in the brain when you're showing them, say, images of another person suffering, well, then you're getting a sense of what compassion looks like neuroanatomically. And that's a really exciting and incredible opportunity for understanding how basic psychological experiences are rooted in the brain and how basic anatomical structures in the brain can illuminate how psychology works. So I think the opportunities are bi-directional. If I might, let me just add one more thing, which is one more insight that I think is interesting to me, that social psychology seems to have been moving in the direction of, or psychology. And there are about 80 or 90 years of research documenting the extent to which people stick to their groups. People are antagonistic potentially toward other groups. There's a history of violence in the human tradition or the history of humanity is sort of a history of violence. And that's given a lot of psychologists the perspective that people are in a way born to be sort of self-serving, especially if you look at behavior from an evolutionary framework then it makes sense that people would do anything that they could to get themselves ahead of the pack and get their groups ahead of the pack of other groups. And what I think is a really important insight, and this is in part a movement that's been inspired by people like my advisor in graduate school, Dacher Keltner, toward understanding that people are a lot more complicated than that and that a lot of the driving motivation to behavior is not just what gets you ahead but also how you can help other people. So in a way, compassion and altruism, we're learning, is hardwired into the brain. And that's a really puzzling thing because it's hard to fit that specifically into an evolutionary framework. But put generally, what I think we're learning about what motivates people is not just that people are motivated to get ahead, but that people are really driven to make others around them happy and to serve other people in ways that benefit others. And that insight has inspired 30 years of the most hard-hitting social psychology that I know of, and it's also given rise to just a different kind of conceptualization of what makes people do the things that they do. Paul Piff, thanks very much for coming on Spectrum. That was a lot of fun. Thanks again for having me on, and I'd be happy to come on any other time. Great. Spectrum is archived on iTunes University. To find the archive, do a search in your favorite browser for iTunes-U space K-A-L-X space Spectrum. A feature of Spectrum is to present news stories we find interesting. Anna Akulian and Renee Rao present the news. A National Institute of Health-funded team of researchers at Stanford University have created an entirely transparent mouse brain. This new process, known as Clarity by its inventors, will allow scientists to explore the neural networks in their natural 3D arrangement without having to slice the brain or severing any neural connections. Additionally, the process preserves the delicate biochemistry of the brain, which will allow researchers to test chemicals affecting specific structures as well as to examine past brain activity. While the breakthrough is not part of the Obama administration's recent brain exploration initiative, the senior author on the paper, Dr. Carl Deseroth, was involved in the planning of the initiative. 
While some moderations do need to be made for the more complex human brain, the Stanford lab has already produced transparent human livers, hearts, and lungs. UC Berkeley researchers in the Integrative Biology Department just came out with a study showing the positive effects of stress. In studies on rats, they found that brief stressful events caused stem cells to branch into new nerve cells that improved the rat's mental performance. It is important to differentiate acute stress and chronic stress. Chronic stress elevates levels of stress hormones that suppress the production of new neurons, which impairs mental performance. Associate Professor Koffer characterizes the overall message of this study as stress can be something that makes you better, but it is a question of how much, how long, and how you interpret or perceive it. We like to mention a few of the science and technology events happening locally over the next two weeks. Rick Karneski, Anna Akulian, and Rene Rao present the calendar. NASA astrobiology researcher and Lawrence Berkeley Fellow in residence, Felisa Wolf Simon, is delivering tonight's Future Fridays lecture at the Chabot Space and Science Center at 10,000 Skyline Boulevard in Oakland. She'll be discussing the chemical elements that can support microbial life on Earth, drawing from molecular biology, biochemistry, and physiology. Admission is $23 in advance. Visit ChabotSpace.org for more info. This Saturday, come to the UC Berkeley campus for the Bears' annual Cal Day. Over 300 lectures, workshops, and presentations will be available with topics ranging from how the interplay of light with the atmosphere can create rainbows to a demonstration from the first laundry-folding robot, Rosie. Cal Day is tomorrow, April 20th, held on the UC Berkeley campus and open to the public. Events begin at 8 a.m. Go to calday.berkeley.edu for a full schedule of events. April 22nd through April 26th is National Parks Week. During this week, admission to all U.S. national parks is free. Put on your hiking boots and visit the nearest national park to you. On April 27th, Berkeley High School will host the day-long Alameda County Apps Challenge. Contestants are asked to create apps that will address community needs using Alameda County open data sets. A prize of $3,000 will be awarded to the most inventive and user-friendly app, while second, third, and honorable mentions will also be meted out. Alameda County invites participation from residents of all skill levels and age groups. The Apps Challenge is part of a nationwide movement to increase transparency and implement open data policies in governmental organizations. The event will be held at Berkeley High School in downtown Berkeley from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. on Saturday, April 27th. It costs $15 to participate, with discounts for students and seniors. There has been a rapid spread of sudden oak death pathogen, referred to as SOD, over the East Bay Hills, specifically in North Berkeley and Montclair. Professor Matteo Garbelotto, head of the UC Berkeley Forest Pathology and Mycology Lab, has been tracking the spread through annual area surveys. Garbelotto's team is looking for volunteers to help conduct annual spring surveys to find diseased trees. There will be several training sessions for volunteers in the Bay Area. The Berkeley session is on Saturday, April 27th at 1 p.m. on the Berkeley campus in 159 Mulford Hall. For other training sessions in the Bay Area, search the web for Sod Blitz Project. The first After Dark at the New Exploratorium in San Francisco is on Thursday, May 2nd. 
After Dark is the Exploratorium's monthly evening program for adults 18 and over. Admission for non-members is $15. In addition to the museum's regular exhibits, there will be live music, films, and themed lectures. The theme this month is Home, and you can hear about how an empty warehouse on Pier 15 was transformed into the Exploratorium's new home. Karen Kalamek will discuss the human microbiome, and Ron Hipschman will talk about what makes Earth and other Goldilocks planets just right for sustaining life. For more information, visit exploratorium.edu. On Friday, May 3rd, the San Francisco Ask a Scientist Lecture Series will host a workshop on crafting the perfect science story. Editors of the Science Writer Handbook will share personal stories of working in the field and address questions about building sustainable science writing careers. The May 3rd event will begin at 7 p.m. in San Francisco's Bazaar Cafe. More details can be found online at askascientistsf.com. Music heard during the show is by Lostana David from his album Folk and Acoustic, made available by a Creative Commons license, 3.0 Attribution. Editing assistance provided by Rene Rao. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.